Hello and welcome back uh, to our podcast. So glad that you've decided to join us uh, for this next, let's try and make it a half an hour, shall we? We have a pretty poor record of keeping recordings brief, but we'll we'll do our best. My name's Cameron. G'day, Ken here. Yeah, it's great to have you joining us, Ken. We, we missed you in the last one. My name's Lachlan. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, Luke's not here uh, with us as yet. He has uh, returned safe and sound from his trip to the Snowy Mountains, but I'm sure has a lot to do unpacking and and uh, readjusting from the carefree camping life back to a, a working week. So um, we're going to dive into it. Look, last week we entitled our discussion Fear God uh, because we were just talking about the the um, different lenses that you can approach Revelation. And uh, one of those lenses is it <clears throat> results in a fair bit of anxiety and fear and trepidation. Fear God and obey his commandments is, in fact, the title of this week's lesson. And um, Or is it fear God and give him glory? Yeah, fear God give and glory. give glory to him. Um, right. Well, we've got a couple of directions that I think is worth, worth moving in this. Uh, one of them is that I, I'm going to start by saying uh, this phraseology, whatever sort of image it is trying to evoke in us, is very foreign to... A 21st century Australian culture, even just the concept of giving glory to, um, we we don't give glory to many people. If you are a politician, or if you are a governor general, or a, if you are a policeman, or a sports star, even you are a subject ripe to be chosen as a tar- as a target. If you step out of line, if you have an affair with the staffer, if you have a drug problem, if you um, have been caught saying things which are racist, if you have offshore um, accounts that are being used to dodge tax or whatever else, um, you are you are pulled down pretty quickly uh, to size. And we, we in fact, are very sceptical of, of lavishing praise. We're certainly sceptical of anyone who who expects people to lavish praise on them, as would have been the norm at the time of the writing of this. So if you were a Caesar or a centurion or a um, high priest or a Pharisee, it seems that there was a much greater cultural expectation that you were entitled to a sort of respect to some, I don't know if that fits the category of glory, but you you, uh, you were entitled to be spoken well of. Hmm. Yeah, look, and it's it's not even... Uh, within our culture, it's not even those who are on a pedestal, um, uh, those who are prominent publicly. I, I mean, we have uh, demeaning uh, uh, names that we call our good friends very fondly. Um, uh, you know, you'll say, oh, oh, you're a silly old bugger. We, we might even use words different to that. Um, um, and... And, and we use uh, insulting names as terms of affection. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, we're just not in a society that that revolves around the structures and the sort of, um, I don't know, our society just isn't built in a way that is centred as much on this concept of glory um, or honour or, or respect in a way that this... Uh, what I mean is, if you went to the average person on the street and said, God expects you to give him glory, their reaction would be, 
um, what a complete. Um, trying to think of that. Who does he think he who is? Who does he think he is? Uh, That's the reaction. I was trying to think of a polite way of saying. Um, <laughs> what uh, the person on the know, street would probably say. To, person on the street. To which, to which the response could legitimately be, well, in fact, he's gone. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But, <laughs> um, but you, know, um, you know, like if someone says something nice to you, I had someone say something nice to me once and he prefaced it by saying, and I'd never heard this expression before, so I was unfamiliar with its usage. <laughs> but the person said, Cameron, I've got something say, to say to you, and I don't mean to blow wind up your ass, but blah, 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 <laughs> and then he said something nice to me. Um, and I was totally unsure what was about to come next because I wasn't sure what... But <laughs> what he meant was is, you know, I'm not trying to suck up to you or to, to lavish, you know, praise per se. I just want to say something that I think is true and important. Um uh, and that was that's the way our society seems to operate. Yeah, it's interesting to me. So this phrase "fear God," which does does appear <clears throat> in Revelation fourteen, and that's that's why it's come up. Um, fear God and give him give him glory. Um, I've done a search, uh, and I, I happened to search for that wording in the NIV, but I'm sure it would be fairly similar across other translations. It actually occurs in the Bible less than I thought it would. I thought it would be everywhere. Um, a lot of it is in the Old Testament, not surprisingly, where it does occur. Um, and quite a, quite a chunk of those. Are, there's four, four instances of it in the book of Job right at the start. I, I find this particularly interesting to me because Job is lauded by God in the first two chapters as being someone who fears God. Um, and... Job goes on to be the sort of person that actually, well, it seems to me, is the sort of person who actually stands up to God a little bit, lets, lets his rage fly. You know, it's, what I'm trying to say is that whatever fearing God means um, doesn't exclude, Job is a person who fears God, but then he's also a person who sort of really talks fairly directly to God about his, his displeasure with things. Um, now, having said that, the fearing God phrases are all in the first two chapters before all of the bad things happen to Job, maybe he becomes, um, you know, I'm being a bit facetious here, maybe he fears God less when all the bad things have happened and that's why he's gotten angry. But what I'm hoping is true is that fearing God, whatever it does mean, um, describes a state in which there is still room for wrestling, wrestling with God, being discontent. Um, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, unlike fearing a king, I, I, this is really what I'm trying to say. If you were to say to me that a medieval um, baron feared the king, then I would assume you were to mean that the baron was not going to say anything critical of the king. Right? Being afraid of the king probably means that he was a bit of a yes man. Whereas Job is not a yes man to God in the book of Job, and yet is still described as someone who fears God. So perhaps there's something more to this phrase. Um, that's mm. what I'm getting at. Look, I've I've um, done some searches, and um, here's a few uh, sort of references to fearing God that I I found. Uh, it's early Old Testament. Uh, the midwives in Egypt who were told to drown the baby boys, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do. Hmm. Couple that with this verse in Leviticus, do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. Do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. Do not take interest or any profit from other people, but fear your God. Do not hmm. rule over people ruthlessly, but fear your God. So 
Um, this fear your God does not seem to equate to the emotional state of being in fear, mm. of being afraid. It, it is obviously used in a, in a different context. Mm. 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 It, it, it's interesting because there are different ways that you can be afraid. I, I recall uh, the uh, story uh, told by um, uh, a good friend of mine now, a Supreme Court judge, and I don't do that for the purposes of name dropping, uh, but because he's somebody who speaks with some authority about this sort of thing for many years, was a barrister, and he spoke about a time when um, there was uh, uh, a ceremony to admit new lawyers to become part of the legal profession. And there's a formal ceremony that occurs in front of the full court of the uh, Supreme Court in the particular state. Um, and uh, it's it's a very um, uh, simple uh, process because everything's already in place. And the people who are going to be admitted, they've already been approved to be admitted. And so uh, a barrister simply moves their admission and says something to the effect of, and now I don't recall the precise words, but um, yeah, uh, I move that John Smith, having fulfilled the requirements, be admitted as a practitioner of this honourable court. Um, and that's all that the lawyer who's moving their admission has to say. Um, and yet the story is told of, of this um, very senior silk, uh, uh, QC, um, who was appearing before the full court to do this very simple act for a, a new practitioner to be admitted and, and was holding his paper and as he held it in his hand, his hand was shaking. Um, so that you know, there was even in that very simple, straightforward task where there was never going to be anything that could possibly go wrong, um, there was an element of anxiety in uh, appearing before uh, an authoritative body. Uh, and and I, I I just thought that was even for a very very experienced lawyer, mm. um, uh, and and I, I don't know is that the sort of thing that we're talking about here? Um, should it be? I mean, God's God, we're human beings. Uh, I think that's part of what uh, is traditionally sought to be conveyed by this concept of feared God. The concept of fearing, as like you say, can lots of different. Um nuanced expressions. A lot of people tell me they are afraid of flying. <clears throat> what they're actually afraid of is of dying in a plane crash. And and it, while it is the case that everyone who dies in a plane crash made the decision to fly, or often, usually, um, it is not the case that everyone who chooses to fly dies in a plane crash. They, but uh, they are afraid of flying. And it, I had a girl once um, when I was at, on a school band trip and I was in year 12 and there was a girl in the choir who was in grade 7 and she was sitting next to me. She said, can I hold your hand on the takeoff? Because I am very frightened of flying. And as the engines revved up, she fainted. Wow. I was out, out, <laughs> out cold for an hour. Now, um, I am also afraid of flying. So I had to fly a plane down for someone else. And I went over the... Because someone else in Tassie here bought a plane and they contacted me and could I fly it down for them? And I went to look at it. And I was frightened because I had not flown that plane before. The plane had not flown for 12 months. It didn't look to me as if it was in quite as good condition as the buyer had made me believe. I was since vindicated because it turns out the person selling the plane was not strictly honest about the age of the engine in the aircraft. Um, and, you know, I went over it. I was afraid 
that there might be some fault. And I went over it with a fine tooth cone and I found one or two faults. And then I took off and I listened very carefully. And I heard a noise I didn't understand, so I went back and landed. And I pulled off the cowling and the noise was a loose hose. It was inconsequential, but, you know, I checked. And the whole trip down to Cessnock from um, Toowoomba, I was afraid that something would go wrong. And racking through my brains, just monitoring the engines, monitoring whenever you've flown a plane that hasn't flown for a long time, you, you treat it with a large deal of care. And I didn't fly a direct route that would take me over the mountains. I went out over the paddocks and I delayed my takeoff because the weather was bad. And I, um, So <clears throat> any pilot who is at all sensible is afraid of flying in that sense. Now, that's... Mm then that's not the same as being having a an instinctive gut fear reaction um, that a lot of people have when they describe being afraid, afraid of flying. Um, it is a very informed and, um, you know, nuanced position, mm. which is as much an intellectual stress as it is an emotional state. And I was enjoying myself, actually, while I was flying down. I, it wasn't that the experience was unpleasant, but I was... I was just carefully checking things over. Um, mm. uh, they say that there are old pilots and there are bold pilots, but there are no old, bold pilots. <laughs> so that that state of, of, you know, being afraid, as you described it, actually was an active state of mind. It was um, yeah. doing things, listening for things, checking things. It was yeah. a motivating I mean, fear. Everyone who is... People who are not afraid of snakes, who a snake handler, for instance, who's quite happily picking up a snake, if you send them off for a walk in the bush in the height of summer, they are still going to keep an eye out for snakes. Hmm. They're going to be afraid of snakes in that sense. They're going to say, hmm, I wonder, is there a death adder on the other side of this log or a, um, a brown snake? Oh, it's long grass. I'll wear gaiters and socks. And if they see it, they may be very excited to see the snake. But they are, they are afraid of snakes sufficiently mm. enough to take care um you know so and you know it's interesting here that the the midwives who feared god were i don't it, it, you do not get the sense at all that they were afraid of god mm. well i think that perhaps shows us a little bit uh perhaps uh there is a certain sense in which that uh, remains a fear. There is at least a respect for the uh, the power of the snake um, uh, and the consequences of um, incorrectly interacting with the snake. Um, uh, the, goodness gracious, now we, it, it's starting to feel a little bit uh, like a terrible analogy, like God's a snake. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, there, there nonetheless is a respect mm. for the, uh, for the, for the danger involved in dealing with, um, uh, a, a, an entity that has the power of life mm. and death. Yeah. The, uh, on, on the measurement though, on the metric imposed in the verses that I read, you know, don't rob people, don't rule them ruthlessly, don't put a stumbling block in front of the blind or make fun of the deaf, which is a fascinating verse, isn't it? Because making fun of the deaf person behind their back, they they literally are not hurt by that encounter in the sense that they can't hear you. Mm. Um, but don't do it anyway, um, because you should fear God. So, But by that metric, I know a lot of people that fear God who are not Christians. 
or theists in any way. Well, that's an interesting thought. I think I agree with you. Mm. Um, it's it's food for thought. We did promise our dear listeners that we would, um, you know, look at this concept of angels' messages more widely. And the thought occurred to all of us as we were sort of planning this recording that one of the common themes of angels' messages in the Bible is the admonition not to be afraid. Yeah, actually, this is super important because all of the instances that we found of the fear God phrase were not angelic messages. The only one, the only one that is in the, in the voice of an angelic messenger is that one in Revelation 14. Um, yeah. Whereas what, what you pointed us to just before we started hitting record, if you start list, listing or looking for instances of angels or heavenly messengers saying, do not be afraid, well, let, let's explore a couple of them. There are so many. Let's let let's go first to Gideon. Or can we go uh, chronologically? Judges, uh, well, yeah, I mean, oh, no, we'll do Gideon uh, first. It depends. Go Gideon first. Well, I don't, I don't mind. No, let, let's go chronologically. Okay. If there's an earlier one of an angel that says, "Do not be Hagar. afraid," let's go there. Hagar, Genesis twenty-one. Mm. It's um. So this is where where it's Hagar possible has that been it's a message from God rather than from an angel, but I think that that distinction is perhaps. Um, no, it's a message from an angel, at least right. in the NIV. Right. Uh, verse 17, uh, God heard the boy crying. So the context of this uh. is that um, is that is that Sarah has told, is it Abram or Abraham? Sarah's told Abraham to sleep with her handmaiden so that um, she Sarah can have children by her. We've commented in the past that we uh, we make more of this than we should. It was a common cultural practice. And... You know, at least about half of the twelve tribes, you know, half of mm. the twelve sons of Jacob were born to Leah or Rachel via a handmaiden, and that this mm. was seemingly an approved process. That there's no suggestion that that was um, particularly for someone uh, like um, Rachel who wasn't having children herself. That if you were a rich person and you were the head of the household but you couldn't have kids, then your handmaiden would have kids, but the child would be yours. Um, and um, we also see this in, in a different context but a similar idea with Ruth and Naomi. When Ruth gives birth to a son, everyone says to Naomi, look, God has given you a son hmm. uh, to replace the sons that you've lost. You know, so there's, there's some cultural... Um, sort of idiom and practice and understanding at work here that is very different to ours. Nonetheless, it's... And the interesting thing is that in in the context of our discussion now is that uh, the angel says, do not be afraid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's the message. Do not be afraid. The message is not fear mm. God. Yeah. Um, the message is do not be afraid. Now, but, here's but another really interesting thing. The point thing. is, Ken... Um, so, sorry, yeah. I'm going to interrupt you because I'm only halfway oh, through you, my... you have interrupted me. I, I already, yes, go on. Halfway through the backstory. So Hagar has been... But perhaps I interrupted you. Hagar has <laughs> been told by her mistress, she's a slave, um, to to have a child for Sarah. She's then subsequently mistreated. God tells, um, you know, Sarah says, get rid of that slave woman and her son. You know, there's Sarah comes across very badly in this passage. Um, and God says to Abraham, yes, send her away. Now, under that context, where Hagar is now in the desert, 
and her son is dying and she cannot bear to see him dying and puts him under a bush and walks a small distance away because she she just cannot be bear to be there at the moment when he breathes his last. Um, that would be a situation in which I would imagine fear to be appropriate. Hmm. Oh, look, quite so. And she's told, do not be afraid. Here's a really interesting thing about the angel. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her. <laughs> now, I mean, there are all sorts of questions. That are, where is this heaven? What's the angel of God as opposed to other angels? Um, uh, come over to Genesis chapter 22 um, and verse 15. And this is just after Abraham has been about to sacrifice Isaac. And uh, uh, he looked up and there was a ram in the thicket. And Abraham called to the Lord, um, that place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it's on the mountain that to the Lord it will be provided. So there's, he's about to lose his second son. He was losing his first son and he's about to lose his second son. And then in verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time. Um, so um, uh, it seems to me it's the same angel that's saving Abraham's sons. Yeah, uh, that's good, Ken. The same angel that said, do not be afraid uh, for Hagar is the one that said, I'm providing yeah, Isaac is, in, a se in essence, returned Return to you. It's, it, it is the way that story is told really emphasizes the fact that God cares equally for both of Abraham's sons. Mm. That's, mm. that's, it is really stressed that God's concerned over Hagar and Ishmael's plight. Um, uh, and both sons are, as it were, miraculously returned to Abraham. And the, the story of Hagar and Ishmael is told so much more emotionally than the story of of Isaac being sacrificed on the mountain. In terms of, I would just go and read it, and it's pretty obvious that one of them is told to really draw at your heartstrings, and the other one is told very much matter of fact. Um, while we're in 22, um, Ken, and we're looking at this passage where Abraham's up on the mountain about to sacrifice Isaac, uh, we should look at verse 12. Because uh, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied, do not lay a hand on the boy. He said, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. Ah, yeah. ah, interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, well there's an interesting contrast, isn't there? Uh, uh, Hagar, there's no suggestion that Hagar was fearing God other than she called to. Um, and um, to Abraham, he does fear God. Uh, to Hagar, he's, she's told not to be afraid. Mm. Um, uh but it's Abraham's fear of God um, that leads to that. It's some interesting contrasts and parallels. There are a number of instances in the book of Joshua of this phrase, do not be afraid. Uh, but I, I think that they may be attributed to the Lord rather than to the angel. Uh, so in 8 verse 1, then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid. Um, 10 verse 8, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid. Uh, Joshua 11 verse 6, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. Um, I can't find any reference to the angel, so we might skip past that one since we're focusing on angelic messages. <laughs> yeah. Can, if we do jump across to Gideon well, what, what, now... Cr cr chronologically, when's the next one? I don't know what the I next... I mean, I'm just coming up with Gideon. I thought... My, my memory was uh, that the angel that appeared to Samson's 
parents uh, also said, do not be afraid. Um, but in fact, I've been back through the passage and it doesn't say anything of the sort. Uh, indeed, they were afraid because when, interestingly, that this angel of this angel comes and talks to them, um, uh, talks first to uh, Zora, uh, sorry, to um, uh, Manoah's wife, um, uh, and the angel of the Lord appears to her and says, "You're going to have a child," and he and she goes and says. A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God. Um, and then uh, Manoah prays to God and says, let the man of God you send. So there's all this confusion about whether it's a man of God or an angel. Mm. Um, and 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 so, and God heard Manoah and the angel of God came again to the woman, again, not to Manoah. Um, he, he, Manoah was the one wanting clarification, but it seems that uh, God continues to deal with his wife. Um uh, and and then eventually uh, Manoah followed his wife and uh, came up to the man and said, are you the one who talked to my wife? Um, and the angel of the Lord said, your wife's got to do everything I've told her, not drinking, fermented drink, etc., etc." And then Manoah says to the angel of the Lord, look, we've prepared some food. Um, and the angel, um, if you recall, then um, burns it and um, disappears in the smoke. Um and at that point, they realize, uh, oh, no, this is not, we're, we're going to die. Uh, we've seen God. Um, uh, and then, uh, somewhat wisely, perhaps his wife was a little more um, uh, wise than Manoah, said, well, that, that, clearly that can't be right. If he was going to kill us, we would have already been dead. Um, yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, um, uh, but and, and my memory of that story was that the angel said, do not be afraid. Um, but my memory is wrong because it's simply not there. But, so, but Ken, there is, then... there is a common element with Gideon. Uh, one is that the angel does not speak out of heaven, but appears as a visible person. And two, that there's yeah. nothing really to distinguish this person from anyone else. Hmm. Because Gideon has... That's a... a little like the visitors of two Abraham. Yes, yeah. Gideon well, actually, has quite a conversation. In fact, Gideon is quite frightened. He's he's treading his his grain in a wine press, isn't it? Or the grapes in a is it? Uh, it, it is. And and then in verse eleven, so this is chapter six of Judges and verse eleven. Yeah. Uh, and the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah mm. that belonged to Joseph the Ahasuerus. Now, I mean, take that picture there. And this is the sort of thing we see with these interactions with, if I can call them spiritual beings. And it's true even of the interactions with the resurrected Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, Mary sees Jesus as, and, and, and assumes he's the gardener. Um, Does he say, uh, the, don't the, be afraid, Kent? Um, I think he might. No, no, he doesn't. He says, why are you crying? Yeah. Um, although I think no, that's in the that's in the John version. I think perhaps in some of the uh, uh, no, I don't think he says it to Mary. I think he says it to the disciples in the mm. um, uh, when he appears to them in the room. Um, but isn't it interesting that they walk and talk the people on the road to Emmaus with this person um, uh, who, uh, and it's not until their eyes are open. It's not until they see things in a different way. Uh, it's not until they have their spiritual imagination enlivened um, 
that they come to see the reality. Otherwise, they just see him as a, another human being. And of course, that's one of the reasons why the disciples and those who interacted with the unresurrected Christ before his death um, have no advantage over us um, because all they saw was another human mm. being. Uh, what, not, no, not, the, not, the, not the Christ of the resurrection, but simply the Messiah who was going to overthrow the Romans. Uh, like any other good mm, yeah. Jewish military leader. Um, um, and, and so often I think we miss God and his and these spiritual interactions um, uh, because we're looking for things in such a prosaic way. And mm. I think that's true also of our uh, uh, interpretation of the events around the second coming, um, uh, and things like, oh, he'll walk with his feet not on the ground. Well, so we're looking for somebody who's walking with his feet not on the ground. I think that's talking about something that's, it's an interaction with uh, a being of an entirely different sort. Um, mm. uh, but anyway, we're getting distracted because we go to Gideon and it's in verse 11 of chapter 6. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak. Um, and when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, uh, Oh, now, where, where is it? It's in 622. Um, it, there's an interaction. He says, you're a mighty warrior. And then, interestingly enough, it's again, fire flared from the rock. We're in verse 21, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. This seems to be a, a common way for the angel of the Lord to disappear in the fire burning the food. Um, uh, when Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, ah, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace, do not be afraid. Mm. You are not going to die. Um, and we see this interact. That we see this um, uh, reference back to uh, Moses saying, well, you can't interact with God directly because if you see him face to face, you're going to die. Um, and, and both Manoah and his wife and Gideon assume that because they've seen the angel of the Lord face to face, uh, the Lord... Um, that they're going to die. Um, and certainly Gideon is told, do not be afraid on that account. Well, that actually connects with the, the passage that I found, which is in um, chapter one of Second Kings. And when I, when I read the phrase, this, is, um, this came up for this search because the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So do not be afraid. And I thought to myself, what, what part of the story of Elijah is this? And I clicked on the link that said, show the context, show the passage in context. And it showed the neighboring three verses. And I was totally bamboozled. But this is the story. I, I had to go and look at the, the whole chapter. Um, this is the story of <clears throat> King Ahaziah, who is the son of Ahab, or who is king after Ahab. And he's, he's injured himself. And he says, go and consult ba Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron. So he's consulting with with foreign gods and idols, and um, this is the this is the story where it, it transpires that the king then sends um, a captain and fifty men to Elijah, because Elijah has sent a message saying, "Why are you consulting with these foreign gods?" And the um, the the captain and the fifty men come to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said, "Man of God," the king says, "Come down." But Elijah answers the captain, "If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men." Oh, and the luck. fire did come and I, consume. This, I know this is facetious, 
but the number of times I've been approached by a student with a wheedling, self-serving, sucking up sort of, oh, you're my favourite teacher, Dr. Rogers, can't I get an extra mark on this test? I'm on a B plus and I'd like an A minus. And I think next time I'll say, if I am your favourite teacher, may yeah. fire come down from heaven. <laughs> Well, you, you might be onto something there because it, it repeats itself again. There's an, a second captain with another 50 men sent and a fire consumes them. A lot of people them. burned up. Yeah, but things go differently for the third captain of 50 men. Rather understandably, the third captain approaches Elijah with a different attitude. And the attitude is in um, verse 13. The third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. Um so what I'm wanting to do here is, is play with this idea of fear and afraid. And you might actually put your finger straight onto the pulse cam. The, um, the first captains might not have really been doing this with much of an, ad, much of an attitude of, of respect, not much of a sort of attitude of, of fearing, the, um, fearing God as represented in this era by his prophet Elijah. And the third captain certainly is portrayed as a totally different attitude. There is, there is the... Um, fell down on his knees so there is the, the the prostration which is part of this whole giving of glory and respect and fear and in the end it's in the context of the captain being afraid of Elijah that verse 15 the angel of the Lord said to Elijah go down with him and don't be afraid of him why would the angel say that why would Elijah be afraid of him he's just consumed two captains and a hundred men with fire and it makes me wonder was Elijah consuming them with fire because he was afraid? You know, there's this, I don't know. To me, this story is fascinating when read through the lens of this theme of fear. Um, there's, there's very clearly an afraid third captain. And it seems to me slightly, slightly bizarre that the angel of the Lord would have to tell Elijah in this context not to be afraid. Um, in the end, <laughs> Elijah delivers a message to the king saying, you will not recover from this illness. And, and the king does die according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. So, yeah. Elijah really doesn't have much to worry about throughout this story. But it's an interesting instance of the do not be afraid as an angelic message. Look, I turned to one of our favourites and I thought, I wonder what the angel says in this instance. There is a story where when a recipient of God's message sees the angel of the Lord, he bows down on his face and the angel does not say, don't be afraid. Okay. And it's one that we've referred to. Um, not 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 this week. Yeah, well, the the one that the one that I would probably list as our favourite would be Balaam. Is it to do with Balaam? It's Balaam. It's Balaam. So Balaam is there beating <laughs> his donkey. He's there beating his donkey, and the angel uh, makes himself. He notices the angel for the first time, and uh, with his sword drawn, and so he bowed low and faced down. And the angel of the Lord says, "Why have you beaten your donkey these three times?" I've come here to oppose you because your path is reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If you'd not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared it. And that's, <laughs> that's what the angel says instead of do not be afraid. I so see. maybe in terms of this, the emotional response to God, maybe God just has different messages depending on who he's talking to. Um, mm. So, and, you know, I, I have this problem when I'm in the classroom because and I look out on a sea of mostly boys who are totally overly confident and cannot really understand um, 
whether or not they are ready for a test at all. And I try and put the fear of the test into them. I say, guys, you know, you will not know how you perform in the test unless you practice. Go home, do a practice test and mark yourself against the answers and see how long it took and you will know what grade you'll get in the test. Mm. It'll be within 5%. And then if you're not happy with it, come and talk, blah, 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 this is serious and da, 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 da. And then as they're walking out the door, I have five very anxious girls stop by my desk and they're almost in tears because they're very stressed about this test. And you have to say to them, look, it really doesn't matter. It's only in grade eight. And, and you know, what matters is whether you actually understand the maths. And I know that you know the maths. And if I was worried about your progress, I would tell you, um, go home, don't do too much study, be happy with what you do in the test because you're on track. Um, that's that's so, interesting. Um, it, the gender type doesn't always hold because I had a student recently who was had a test the following day. I was doing relief teaching. They had a test the following day, but they were spending maths class looking at dresses for the... Um, this is about three or four weeks ago, so we were still in March. They look at, she was looking up dresses for the school ball. Mm. And I said, to, I said to her, why are you looking up dresses? The test is tomorrow. And she said, yes, but the school ball is in May. So this question of fearing is obviously got a little bit of nuance to it. Yeah, uh, look... There's many, many more instances of this do not be afraid um, in the mouth of angels, but I'm worried that we're we're running out of time for this episode. Well, and I think we should perhaps finish with one um, that is in the story that's central um, to uh, Christianity, and that's the birth uh, of Christ. And the first one, of course, is in Luke chapter 1, where... um, uh, an angel of the Lord and verse 11, where an angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah, uh, the uh, father of John the Baptist. And uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Um, one might say insofar as heaven is where the presence of the Lord is, then maybe the temple is a similar place. And there's the angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you'll give him the name John. He'll be a joy and a delight to you. Mm. Um, and then, of course, in um, Luke chapter 2, uh, and we go over to... And, and I think this is an interesting place to tie in with the um, uh, fear God and give glory to him, which is where we started this. Because the angels come to the shepherds. Uh, or and, and in verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. <laughs> but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Um, I pause there to say that the sign of the glory of God is a baby human that's indistinguishable virtually from any other poor baby. Um, but uh, And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favour rests. The glory of God is in the peace of that he brings to earth and the favour that he gives to men. 
That's wonderful, Ken. I um, That is an ideal place on which to stop. Um, I had also found <coughs> a place on which to stop. Um, it was... Hang on, it involves C.S. Lewis, Adrian Plass, no. or... <laughs> no, it was also the character of Jesus, but at the other end of his life. Uh, mm. When the centurion saw how he had died, he said, surely this is the Son of God. Um, that How he had died, and that's from the Gospel of Mark, he died mocked um, by everyone around him, uh, mocked by the thieves next to him, um, in silence, refusing his, his wine mixed with myrrh. What was it that the centurion saw? And when we're told to fear God, that's an interesting story to, to pull in. You know, that, that helpless mm. babe grew up. And the Roman centurion, I'm sure it was not the first person he'd, he'd um, crucified. What was it about this one where he looked at it and said, you know, surely this was the, the son of God? I, I think it's well, I think there's a wonderful um, meditation to be undertaken to say, what is it that enables us, what gift is it that he's given to us that enables us to see God um, in the ordinary events of our lives? Because that's where he appears. Uh, that's where he constantly appears throughout the Bible. Um, in, the, in, in another everyday execution by a Roman centurion. Um, it's, that's where he appears. Uh, in the grief and death, uh, in the grief over the death of a, of, of a, uh, of a great love um, for Mary, that's where he appears. Um, in a discussion about political events of the day, um, that's where he appears on the road to Emmaus. Um, in going about the work of judging, um, that's where he appears on the road to Damascus, to Saul. It's in those, as you go, mm. that's when he appears. Mm. And what is it in those situations? Perhaps the admonition to fear God is uh, best understood as... Um, uh, as uh, cultivating an awareness that that God is actually here, and those midwives who who didn't drown the boys did it because they could see the Pharaoh, but they knew that God was there, um, and so obviously they disobeyed Pharaoh because that was to them the obvious thing to do, because uh, they and you would you would it'd be hard to imagine circumstances more ordinary than being a slave at the tail end of 400 years of slavery, um, you know, without any, without any real visible sign that God is there or cares. Um, we will leave it there. We didn't keep it to half an hour, but we had a good discussion. Uh, there is much more discussion to be had. Feel free to email us at the address at schoolfromhome at gmail.com and uh, share this podcast with your friends, if so you wish, uh, or indeed your enemies, and uh, join us for next week's discussion.